and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! listeners this is jonah goldberg host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch and dispatch media come on by check things out uh we're in a nice new uh resurgent uh uh membership upswing in recent months in part because of the um, really wonderful work of our um growth guy who we've um finally given we finally got in a position where we can do a lot of the things that we want to do for a while and we'd like to keep the momentum going so if you can uh if you can become a member if you like this podcast well um maybe you could show a little gratitude by becoming a member i think you'll be glad that you did okay so um every time i think i've ever had uh our next guest on his first question to me was who canceled so i decided i'm gonna i'm gonna head that off and say that no one canceled um and i just i affirmatively wanted to have him on uh old friend uh old colleague um and frankly just an old dude at this point uh uh kevin williamson of national review welcome back to the uh remnant hey john how are things things are good um although you know i was listening to your podcast the other day and um it really occurred to me that i'm i'm, I'm kind of a dork because you had um Vincent Canado on, I think, mm -hmm. and the topic of Russophobia came up. And I thought for a second, I really think Russophobia is a thing. I don't think many Americans have really even read Rousseau, much have strong <laughs> opinions about him. I don't think, you know, they're sitting around, you know, lamenting the social contract. Uh, that's that's where my mind went when that uh, came up. That um, was not what you were talking about. It was not what I was talking about. I probably should have done a softer you and Russophobia, and then you would have picked yeah. up. But I, I have to say, I've I've had bouts of Russophobia uh, more than once. Um, well, you're you're kind of a special case there. Fair, fair. Um, I thought you were going to give me grief about uh, the word metaxi um, or praxis, which uh, <laughs> I, I, we can reveal. You emailed me um, after I did my off the cuff rant about praxis and metaxi and said and i said the way to remember that praxis uh is something along the lines it sounds like practice it's not quite the same thing whatever and you wrote me to say actually praxis is just the greek word for practice and uh, pretty close yeah yeah so i felt a little stupid so um uh, but i have the confidence to admit it so um why don't we More just accurate, sort of... they, they come from the same greek word right, right to get fair. exactly into that yeah um um, why don't we just sort of start? You've written a couple of things about Russia of late. Um, yeah. I particularly agreed and liked your piece about how Russia, Russia's failures kind of show the fragility of authoritarian regimes um, because they mm -hmm. don't have the backstops and feedback loops that create sort of um, vibrancy. Um, so why don't you walk through that and also what you think we should do next because you just have a new piece about how we should think about Russia. Yeah, I think that um, when we talk about freedom and particular freedoms, you know, civil rights, free speech, um, freedom of the press and those sorts of things, we almost always think about them in, uh, in moral terms. And uh, they, are, they are moral goods, but they're also really, really important practical goods that make a society stronger and more flexible, more dynamic and uh, more resilient. And authoritarian societies don't really have this. Um, 
they tend to bring out the worst in their leaders and they tend to advance the worst kind of people into leadership. Hayek's got a whole section about this in the, in the road to serfdom called why the worst get on top. And it's, um, it's, it's really quite persuasive, but, um, you know, a free society has the ability to really rally and deploy its collective intelligence against social problems, economic problems, material problems in a way that more, um, structured and um what's the word i'm looking for regimented societies mm -hmm. don't really have so i mean one of the really great things about um the united states and particularly things that are really underappreciated about american practice like american bankruptcy law i think is one of the really under underappreciated achievements of, of the united states because it makes it possible for businesses and entrepreneurs to fail quickly and fail in such a way as that it doesn't ruin their lives economically uh, forever, which means we get to try a lot of new things mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, kind of throw a lot of things to the wall and see what sticks. And so that really speeds up the process of innovation and evolution of, um, of dealing with all kinds of problems, including practical problems. And we've seen this now, um, kind of being illustrated in a really, uh, amusing way in, in the case of Russia, which had this allegedly fearsome, uh, military, but of course can't manage, you know, sort of basic logistical things. It's got all sorts of uh supply and equipment problems relating coming out of corruption and um and just having you know sort of outdated practices and outdated things so if you had um you know something like putin's military and putin's ruthlessness and fedex's logistical capabilities you would have a real force on your hands <laughs> but you typically don't get those things together um you either get the ruthlessness or you get fedex you you can't really have a society that produces both usually mm -hmm. i mean there are times in the very short term where authoritarian societies can look really, really smart in the short term because they can force um, certain social changes that normally take a long time to happen into a short period of time. So we've seen this a million times that we always get fooled by it. Um, when an authoritarian government, usually a communist government, comes in and takes a rural society and forcibly industrializes it. Right. And so you get a very short period of dramatic economic growth and transformation. And so it's, wow, these Soviets are economic geniuses, or the Chinese are economic geniuses. And it's kind of a one-trick thing that a country can do once. And uh, the United States went through the same thing of, of evolving from a largely agrarian society into an industrial. But it took a long time, and it wasn't centrally directed by an authoritarian government, so it didn't happen in quite as dramatic a fashion. Um, but so we, we, we see these kinds of things you know, from time to time, and we tend to, I think, misunderstand what's actually going on. And there's this rhetoric, you know, particularly on some parts of the right that are the sort of, you know, Putin admiring right or the kind of Le Pen adjacent right that dislike um, what we would call classical liberalism or, or liberalism. And they believe that liberal societies are decadent and they're weak and they're effeminate. And that the point of comparison should be the strong authoritarian patriarchal societies with, you know, strong men rulers like Orban or Putin or, or whoever. And there are some of them that, you know, frankly, Admirer Xi and uh, and people along those lines, even if they don't share the particular political ideology, and I think they really underestimate how weak and brittle and um, frail those societies are in lots of ways. And I think that we're seeing a a really useful illustration of that right now. Yeah, and what so on the on the the point about falling for it every time. I mean, the the way it was first explained to me about you know the massive increase in Soviet productivity that you got was 
look, you're just going to get a lot of returns on investment if you replace a donkey cart with a bulldozer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can have a lot of margin for error in terms of inefficiencies of killing people, <laughs> of, of putting the bulldozer in the wrong place because it's such like a 100x return on between you know between using industrial level fertilizer and earth moving equipment and that kind of stuff and traditional rakes and hoes and that kind of thing but it's a one time kind of thing and it doesn't have to do with brilliant economic planning it just has to do with the fact that they're essentially taking technology that was created in the west yeah. and taking credit for the productivity returns that when applied in the east um but on the so like I I don't know what you think about him I think he's a legitimately brilliant dude I also think he is an unbelievable jerk in his public persona. Um, Nassim Taleb, the black swan guy. Um, mm-hmm. And so I hate invoking him because um, he's just so obnoxious. Uh, <laughs> but uh, his anti-fragile point, I think, is a really good one. And, yeah. um, and the way I kind of think about why America has these advantages is part of it is sort of I, I hate biological metaphors for politics. but. Um, we have a really robust microbiome in America, right? We have just an enormous amount of, of little platoony civil society organisms within the macro organism that work stuff out. And so we actually empower individuals to tell the truth, right? And they're like free speech in business con in a, in a business context, even though it's not technically like a first amendment kind of free speech is like hugely important. So like Jack Welsh, used to have a thing where anybody could stop production at the factory if they thought something was going wrong. That's the kind of thing, you know, in the Soviet Union or even in today's <laughs> Russia, you know, you're just not allowed to do. And it's short-term inefficient, but long-term incredibly valuable for improving, you know, both the quality of the final product, but also the quality of the of the procedures. Um, yeah. And uh, authoritarian regimes just don't have the ability to... to recognize that kind of stuff because they don't reward truth telling horizontally or vertically within specific organizations or within the society itself. And so you end up living off of a lot of myths about what you're supposed to say rather than what the actual truth is. Um, I just, so do you have um, um, a comprehensive theory about what it is that is so attractive to the to certain people um of the le pen putin orban mussolini <laughs> we go down a long yeah. list model um that lets them otherwise very smart people just get blinded by that yeah i think it's um it's the illusion of power and um the conflation of an idea of national greatness with personal power. So there are people you and I both know names we could name, but maybe shouldn't right now um, who were very easily corrupted as it turns out by proximity to power mm-hmm. when uh, Donald Trump became president and um, who abandoned all sorts of things that they had, you know, claimed to hold dear. And um, really some of them going through this kind of, you know, overnight, almost Jekyll and Hyde, uh, transformations in terms of their thinking, their personalities, their, you know, kind of affect. And um, proximity to to that kind of power is something that really um, entrances a certain kind of person, I think. 
And um, even seeing it from a distance when it's a leader in another country, I think can be really um, fascinating for some people and really uh, compelling for them as well. And something I got into in one of my Russia pieces, there's an idea that, um, and you see this particularly in authoritarian countries, that countries can come up in the world the way leaders like Putin come up in, in a country like Russia, which is basically through ruthlessness and amorality and, uh, and a little bit of, of cunning. And that's not really how countries become, you know, strong and stable and powerful. It takes, you know, all sorts of innovation and experimentation, long-term investment, building of institutions, all the boring stuff that goes into building, you know, a free and decent liberal society of, you know, having independent courts that work and competitive elections and, um, you know, reliable, predictable rule of law and the institutions and those sorts of things. Um, that's all really complicated and it's really boring if mm -hmm. you really, really dig into it. And whereas these stories, you know, Mussolini was this kind of really dramatic uh, character, at least early in his career. And it's easy to pay attention to one person versus a lot of people and a lot of institutions. That's why our politics um, is focused so heavily on the presidency, because it's easy to pay attention to one guy mm -hmm. and tell yourself a story about one guy. It's like modern, you know, uh, action filmmaking where the, um, the goal is to have the hero in every frame, you know, to have him on camera all the time, lest people's minds start to wander and, uh, and go other places in the story. So if you're someone who covers Congress or thinks about Congress, you know, you've got 535 not very interesting people and uh, a million committees and subcommittees and processes and procedures. And none of this stuff is nearly as exciting as the idea of this man is the hero he stands for the people and, um, you know, he carries us forward in some brave and heroic and classical kind of way. Yeah. The, um, the power thing has been a big part of my explanation because it's one of my intellectual hobby horses that the phrase from Acton power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Acton believed that. And I mean, he's a good liberal. We like Acton, you know, two thumbs up for Acton, but the actual context of the letter that he was writing that about wasn't about the people holding power. It was about the intellectuals writing about power. And he was talking about how he was talking to this guy, Crichton, who was a biographer of the popes of the papacy kind of thing. And, um, and not the, uh, Andromeda strain guy. No, different, different, uh, maybe the same. No, not slightly different spelling. Uh, there's an E in the Crichton historian guy. And he basically says, uh, you know, you, you know, the, the old, you know, got to break a few eggs to make an omelet thing that intellectuals love to do about whether it's Castro or Stalin or whoever, um, is a sign of moral corruption, right? Is that you've, you've, you're, you're now applying a different moral standard to the powerful than you would to a normal human being. And I, and I do think that's, that's part of what's going on on this movie, on the, on your point about having the action star in every frame. So our mutual friend Rob Long told me um, the story years ago about how Tom Cruise basically insists on being in almost virtually every frame or close to it. And he says, mm -hmm. "Go back if you go back and you watch The Last Samurai, it is kind of amazing at how, except for a few cutaways, <laughs> it's just Tom Cruise <laughs> on the screen the whole time. And so, you know, my, one of my favorite lines from Seinfeld is about Elaine saying how she loves stuffed crust pizza because it's going to be years before they find a way to get more cheese on a pizza. Um, you know, it was like a real innovation. <laughs> and the Tom Cruise 
movie Oblivion then came out and they figured out, okay, we'll make an army of Tom Cruise clones. (laughs) They figured out a way to get more Tom Cruise in the film. um, Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it, it's not worth watching. I've, I've just did you a favor by spoiling it. Um, yeah. So, um, he's kind of an interesting guy actually, because he makes a lot of kind of, you know, bad predictable movies, but he's actually a really very good actor. Yeah. I agree. And then you, sometimes you'll, you'll see him in things where he's not being Tom Cruise, like, uh, Magnolia or something mm-hmm. like that. And Tropic it's a Thunder. whole different kind of, <laughs> he's a lot of fun <laughs> in, uh, Tropic Thunder and, uh, he likes to dance in movies. So you gotta, you gotta give him that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's similar, not exactly the same to Brad Pitt, who is just so easy on the eyes um, that you forget that he's actually a really good actor because um, yeah. he looks like a movie star, but he actually is an actor, you know. Um, but uh, anyway, where were we? So what do you think? Um, uh, let's say I know this is this is even le- so I, I had Brian Riedel on our budget wonk friend and Mm -hmm. i posed the question to him saying if you could uh be an advisor to joe biden and you knew he would take your advice and we both agreed that this was a very unlikely scenario even even more (laughs) unlikely scenario let's say you were an advisor to joe biden and he was gonna take your advice other than telling him to repent and you know uh all that kind of stuff uh what would you tell him about what, what how would you tell him to think about uh the ukraine stuff yeah well i you asked me what i would tell politicians I always think of the last line of t.s Eliot's uh, difficulties of a statesman which is resign 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 <laughs> but uh so you so um, what you're saying is you want kamala harris to be president of the united states that's what absolutely, i'm hearing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think that, um, I think that would be a real step in the right direction um I think that we are not nearly confident enough in our position vis-a-vis Russia and uh, Ukraine. Um, you know, if you'd asked me a couple of years ago what we should be doing about Russia, I would have said basically not very much. Um, Putin's basically a European problem, and the Europeans don't seem to care very much about him. And uh, so it's really hard to care about a problem on someone else's behalf more than they care about it. Um, but Putin has really given the world a gift by making this just enormous. Uh, historic blunder, um, getting himself into this mess in Ukraine that he's not going to find a good way to get out of, and uh, demonstrating the weakness of his military and his inability to um, really impose his will on uh, the Russian state in a way that gets the kind of outcomes that he's he's looking for. I mean, in a sense, he's already lost, right? Mm-hmm. Because Ukraine was supposed to be a display of strength, and it's really turned into a display of weakness and a display of incompetence. So everyone talks about, I hate this cliche of off-ramps. We've got to give you know, Putin an, an off-ramp. I think we should be standing in the way of the off-ramps uh, to a certain extent and blocking them. And most of the conversation is, you know, how do we get this war to end while getting the Ukrainians to give up a minimum in terms of um, their sovereignty or land or whatever else? in order to get Putin to stop doing what he's doing. I think he's in a bad enough position that we should be asking a different question entirely, which is how do we extract the maximum in damage and losses uh, out of him? And I think we should make it clear to him that we're going to keep up these economic sanctions. We're going to make them worse 
in the future, irrespective of if he pulls out of Ukraine tomorrow, um, just in a purely you know punitive and uh, ongoing sense. And that our question for him is, what are you going to give up to buy your way back into the world economy? Because we can keep you out of it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing about this for the United States is it's going to be easier on us than almost any other country, because the last thing we need is oil and gas. Mm-hmm. We've got plenty of that stuff. Um, in fact, that was kind of really one of our big lost opportunities, I think, in the whole run up to this is that to the extent that we were an active participant in the conversation in Europe, it was really just heckling the Germans and and trying to bully them about Nord Stream 2 and say, you know, you can't build this pipeline with the Russians and we're going to sanction you and threaten you and do all sorts of retaliatory things. Um, that's not really, I think, how you get a country that is one of your allies to kind of come around to where you want to be. And it was especially stupid because the Germans need to buy a lot of fuel. We've got a lot of fuel to sell mm-hmm. and would be a much more reliable partner um, and much less trouble to be in business with than the Russians. Now, there's all sorts of logistical concerns there because it's a lot cheaper to pipe right. gas in from next door than it is to put it on ships. But there are ways to you know, deal with those sorts of problems and to mitigate those costs to a certain extent. And that's, you know, if you're going to have giant, uh, powerful, expensive governments, if they're not there to deal with, you know, kind of basic logistical problems, you have to kind of wonder what the point of them is. But rather than even entering into that conversation in a way that really spoke in a frank way to everyone's self-interest, including their economic interests on top of their security interests, we just, you know, essentially tried to twist their arms, which isn't effective if you aren't willing to, you know, twist harder than we're willing to twist when it comes to uh, our allies. And not that I think we should twist our allies harder. I think we should, you know, persuade them. But um, so that was the whole of our involvement almost for for a big part of this. And uh, Putin has really given us a chance to change that by producing an almost unanimous response in the in in the free world, and um, which is much more united and robust and rigorous and far reaching than I think he or anyone else had expected. And you've got private sector actors, businesses and such going far beyond what is actually required of them under the law. This is a real opportunity for us to really turn the screws on this guy. And he is a problem. He's a problem that we probably could have afforded to ignore for a while. But when, you know, history gives you a layup, you know, you take it. Um, it, It's very rare for a problem as big as Vladimir Putin's Russia to present you with, um, such an attractive opportunity for dealing with it. And you know, I hate to take a you know a cynical idea or a cynical view of, of the Ukrainians. Obviously, we should be doing what we can to see that their interests are looked after here too, and that the death and destruction being rained down in their country is is minimized. But we should also probably be, be pretty frank that our our long-term interests and their long-term interests are not exactly the same. And um, it is good for us in a purely, you know, kind of Machiavellian way that Russia has made this mistake, that has made it where it's made it, and that it's currently in the middle of this mess that's going to find it hard to extract itself from, and that we have an opportunity to make it even harder, and there's a good reason to do that. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously I'm sympathetic. Um, I do think it's like... We, could see, we would see the... I, I, I suspect, and for not necessarily bad reasons, we would see a big chunk of the Western unity and coalition kind of melt away if we were taking a hawkish position, more hawkish than the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, and I wouldn't blame people like I wouldn't blame the polls for saying, hey, wait a second, you know, like Ukraine's falling apart. If Ukraine wants this piece, you know, blah, 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 blah. Although I could see polls arguing it the other way, too. But my 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 larger point is, is I just feel so terrible for Ukraine that it's it's difficult for me to think of how you can come up with a scenario where you say, well, you know, let's keep this quagmire going because it's eating up the Russians um, a little while longer. Um, I think it's a tough thing to sell um, and for understandable reasons. At the same time, um, it would be good if Ukraine was in the place, if we were in a place where instead of Ukraine begging us for more, we had Ukraine lobbying us saying, okay, (laughs) that's enough. (laughs) And that's a different thing. Well, I mean, think about it. I mean, we we wouldn't want to say, because it sounds so awful and cynical that we want to extend this quagmire and make it as expensive for the Russians as we can. But that's what giving arms to the Ukrainians means. Yeah. uh, In practical terms. Um, It means extending the war and making making it last longer than it otherwise would. Now, I would like to see the Ukrainians actually hand the Russians a, an, an actual real undeniable military defeat here, which hasn't happened yet and may not happen. Mm. Um, but it very well may happen. You know, um, the, the Russians have got themselves into situations like this before and, you know, been forced to run home with their tails between their legs, notably in Afghanistan. So it's not, you know, beyond the realm of, uh, of possibility. So I think we should be thinking uh, big here. We should be thinking bold. And we always talk about, you know, American leadership and uh, particularly the Democrats like to talk about, you know, the U.S. as an engaged multilateral partner exercising, um, you know, kind of diplomatic and intellectual and and moral leadership in the world. Well, this is what that means. You know, this is where you have a chance to to um, actually exercise that. Um, It is possible to use American power and American leadership and American wealth and might for something other than climate change. And, um, we probably should. Did you see, by the way, um, I was going to write something about it, but I, I, I needed to confirm something, but, um, this guy Duba Dubay's, I can't, I don't remember Dubay's, I can't remember what his name is, something like that, who was the Russia climate envoy and a longtime advisor to, to Putin. Uh, he just bugged out of Russia over Ukraine. He was like, that's it. <laughs> that's it. I'm out. And what I love about it is the last I heard from John Kerry, and this is the thing I needed to check. So I didn't want to like be too unfair was that he didn't want to just keep Russia negotiating on Iran. He wanted to keep Russia in the mix to talk about climate change and, and like, sure, didn't yeah. want to, he said, we need to de-link Ukraine and climate change. And it was like pretty amazing that the American climate envoy is less in favor, is more in favor of maintaining relation, you know, relations uh, on climate talks with Russia than the Russian climate envoy is over Ukraine. Yeah. As I've been writing for a while now, you can tell that the Biden administration isn't serious about climate policy because they put John Kerry in charge of it. And if you actually wanted to get something done, you wouldn't put John Kerry in charge of it. I don't say that just to be facetious because I don't like John Kerry. And I think he's kind of an ass, although that's certainly part of it. But, um, you know, I, I went to the UN um, climate summit to COP26 in Glasgow and you know, talked to people, and interview people. And I actually kind of take the seri- issue maybe a little more seriously than a lot of conservatives do. But um, if the United States is going to make any kind of real change along the lines of what people want to see 
um, on the climate activist side is by definition going to have to be a bipartisan effort. Right. You're going to have to have a lot of buy-in from the from the Republican side of the aisle, and you're never going to get that with John Kerry in charge. Yeah, I mean, I it seems can't. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm with you on taking it more seriously than a lot of people on the right do. At the same time, um, you know, the the demands for immediate action are just wholly unrealistic when you actually look at the numbers involved, right? And immediate drastic action and and the idea that somehow the united states which has actually been doing really well about lowering its emissions the last mm -hmm. 10 years because of the natural gas from coal transition and all the rest like it really doesn't put a huge dent in things until you deal with you know china and russia and africa and india and all that yeah. and so it seemed to me like the smartest thing biden could have done um you know it's a constant theme on this podcast that biden should do like basically your sister soldier thing once a week to prove that he's not beholden <laughs> to uh, the left wing base of his party. And what would have been a really smart move by my lights is um, announce a massive expansion in the, you know, and at least natural gas stuff and all of that and use it to buy a huge increase in some green technology initiative, right? You know, do both. Yeah. And that way you give every politician um, an excuse for why they want to vote for it, that they can take back to their constituencies. Um, and that would actually be good. You know, that actually would have a, a, a positive effect, not just on the economy, but on the inflation problem and, 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 and all the rest. And, and, and the fact that the people who would scream the loudest of him are not particularly popular in America um, would be of benefit to him. But he's, he yeah. doesn't think in those terms. You know, the Ukraine conflict is really, among other things, shown what a paper tiger the climate issue is. You know, I'm saying, oh, my God, gas is up a buck and a quarter. It's the end of the world. you got to yeah. get rid of the federal gas tax and empty the strategic petroleum reserves and all that. And I understand that this is really, really hard on, on low-income people who um, – when gas, you know, goes up, goes up a bit, are really having to make some hard economic choices. This is not to uh, belittle um, the impact, the the impact that it has on people. But if we're going to essentially reorganize the entire world economy from energy to labor markets to trade and manufacturing and everything else around greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, it's going to be really expensive. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a lot more expensive than gas going up a buck and a quarter. Um, so right now I can hear listeners listening to this podcast and saying to themselves, why isn't there more metaphysics? So, um, <laughs> um, uh, you, uh, had notes. I don't know if they were critical notes or positive notes or something in between on my little diatribe about how sort of one of the defining features of conservatism is comfort with contradiction, right? That mm -hmm. this idea, uh, just so listeners who didn't hear me talk about it very quickly, I've written about it a bunch, um, that part of, I would argue part of the sort of the conservative metaphysical outlook is, and one could take this to a more theological place and say this has to do with nature of uh, fallenness and, 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 the, and, and the Christian worldview, or, um, or you can take it to a much more 
purely policy focused way, but is this idea of the of comfort with contradiction that not all good things go together, that there's an upside to a lot of bad things. There's the there's a there's a downside to a lot of good things and that to, you know, in this sort of Thomas Solian way or the Bastiat way to say that to govern is to choose and that every choice um, but to do one good thing means it's less you're less able or not able at all to do another good thing because we are all constrained by the nature of time and finite resources and while we may you might be a cornucopiist i don't know if you are but like at the end of the day we're never going to get rid of the, the the finiteness of time i believe yeah um or at least certainly not for a while so um <laughs> anyway uh well, your get, thoughts are if we that? get rid of the finiteness of time what does a while mean uh, if, we're, point. if we're actually going to make this a uh, a marijuana fuel dorm room conversation, uh, let's let's go right to it. No, I actually I think that's a really useful and interesting way of, of thinking about it, and it touches on on something that I've written about and talked about a little over the years, which is one of the things that I think is a um, problem in the political thinking of the small D democratic world, and particularly in the United States, is the desire to take every decision and recast it in such a way that you could draw a universally applicable principle out of it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that every precedent has to be you know, universally applicable. And this is something Obershaw gets into some in rationalism and politics. Um, it's hardly a, an original idea of mine. But um, I think that's, that's really true. And you see it in, in the writings of you know, some more popular writers like Ayn Rand, mm -hmm. um, you know, has this real thing of if there's any sort of contradiction or inconsistency in your principles, then that's automatically a sign that something is wrong and corrupted and needs to be addressed. And of course, as, as you're saying, the world is actually complicated. And one of the places I think this would have solved, saved us a lot of grief is in our thinking about um, civil rights law. I think that um, you know, when they were first debating you know, some of the, the broader aspects of, of civil rights acts in 1964, 1965, um, People were talking about things like the public accommodations doctrine and how this eventually could be misused and if it's, you know, kind of generalized and um, where's the limiting principle, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that we would have been much better off saying, you know, there are a lot of people in American history and in contemporary American society who have experienced and do experience all sorts of invidious discrimination and bigotry. Jews, Catholics, gay people, women at various times. Um, but no one's situation is really like the situation of African-Americans. And the federal government has a particular relationship with that question because of the Civil War, um, because we did fight you know, a civil war over the question of the status of African-Americans, and that it's probably acceptable to have some laws on the books that are really just about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think, for instance, you know, the, um, the business about public accommodations and, you know, whether you know, restaurants could discriminate, whether, you know, hotels and things like that could discriminate. Um, I mean, there's a case for allowing it, right? The people who argue that people have a right to conduct their own business the way they want to, even for bad reasons, um, certainly have a point. We believe in property rights and freedom of association and all that. Um, but it seems like that's probably a pretty good place to make a carve out for that mm -hmm. and say, you know, here we're, we're making an exception because of this extraordinary situation that really isn't replicated anywhere else in, in American culture and American political reality. But we are really, as a people, not capable of doing that. And so it was in some way inevitable that um, the conversations we were having in the 1960s 
ended up being, well, can we compel this Christian baker in Colorado to make a sex toy Luciferian themed cake for uh, this client who, mm-hmm. who demands it of him? And uh, for, for reasons of, you know, non-discrimination and, and non-bigotry and civil rights and such. And I think that if we were a little more comfortable with contradiction and inconsistency, we would avoid some of these problems. Yeah, no, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, it's, I get a lot of grief about, it's funny, the only chapter in my underrated book, Tyranny Clichés, I still get grief from people about, is um, my condemnation of the phrase, of of the idea of the slippery slope. Yeah. Because uh, there's an argument there are good arguments to say there really is a slippery slope, right? I mean, again, it's a metaphor, so it's, it's, it, it, it's very easy to find a set of facts that confirm the existence of this, of the slippery slope. And part of my argument about the slippery slope was, was that, no, you actually need human beings pushing something beyond the reasonable, um, it's not going to happen all on its own. There's human agency to it, right? It's not, yeah. there's, a, there's a weird Marxist twang to right side of history and to the slippery slope in the sense that it's this, it's, you know, that, that, that we will be powerless to push back on if we allow A, it is inevitable that we'll get Z when in reality, right. no, it's like, you know, Z is really crazy and maybe we'll get M. You know, but um, and maybe A is a valuable thing. It's each 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 new advance or 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 descent um, requires an argument and effort, and um, yeah. and so I I agree with you that. So this is a great frustration I have because I I entirely agree with you that like, and I don't want to go as far as I. Th- I think Chris Caldwell actually argues in his latest book that like the civil rights acts were a mistake and I, 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 I'm mm-hmm. not going there, but there was a downside to them in the sense that, uh, not, there was no downside as, as you know, with the exception maybe of sort of some of the hard racial quota stuff that you could say came as a slippery slope from that. Um, but there's no downside in my, by my lights about what it did for African-Americans. There is a downside of what it did for, identity politics more broadly because of the legal framework that it created that everybody sort of copied. And, yeah. you know, if I say, well, as a, if I own a diner, um, I shouldn't be, uh, the state shouldn't force me to serve people who come in, um, with, you know, uh, hail Satan costumes or whatever. Um, I should be able to say, you know, take that someplace else. And people say, well, if you don't, if we don't allow that next, we're going to be saying that you can turn away black people. And I was like, no, because yeah. black people are different than Satanists. And the metaphor doesn't, the analogy doesn't work. Anyway, we should get yeah, back I think to there's metaf- two things. I, I, I remember that part of the book. I reviewed that book as I recall, but, um, so there are two things kind of going on there. One is I think you've got a, a really good point about slippery slopes are not self-executing. Right. Um, you know, it's not an automatic, inevitable thing that once you've established the precedent, it'll be pushed out there. But when we have these conversations and we say, well, if we set this precedent, then people will say X, Y, and Z. And we say, well, no, but that's stupid and dishonest and irresponsible. As a matter of prudence, we should 
keep in mind that there are stupid and dishonest and irresponsible people in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, we have to, to some extent, take them into account when we're making political decisions. So uh, getting back to the, the metaphysical part, I mean, so I'm a defender of ideology, um, rightly understood, mm-hmm. which, you know, which puts me in the same camp as, as our friends and, and, and my former colleagues, Ramesh and Rich, when they say that they're in favor of nationalism rightly understood, right? I mean, like, once you say rightly understood, you absolve yourself of, of all sorts of problems, or as they put it, benign nationalism. Well, I, I'm for all benign things, um, you know, um, but uh, um, but my, under- my, my view of ideology um, was always like, it's a checklist of principles. And sometimes those principles, getting to this comfort with contradiction thing, right? Is like this is the this is my standard riff for years now about um, what I like about conservatism is that it acknowledges its dogma, and it actually acknowledges that parts of its dogma conflict with other parts of its dogma, and so you have to have a balancing test, or it's a prudential question. You know, if you read that that what is conservatism book, um, uh which I wrote the new forward to for ISI like 10 years ago, um, what becomes abundantly clear is that there are a bunch of people, you know, the whole fusionist debate was um, about where the trade-offs are between liberty and order and freedom and virtue and, and, and all of these sorts of things. And sometimes, like when you're at war or if you've been invaded or if a bunch of terrorists knock down a building, um, there's nothing inconsistent or hypocritical for a conservative to say, Let's lean a little bit more on the order part um, in order to deal with the threat at hand. And then there's nothing there's nothing hypocritical or inconsistent for another conservative to say, yeah, but this far and no farther. And if that puts it and if going farther puts us in more danger, so be it, because some things can't be sacrificed. Right. And then it's an argument about the trade offs. Um, that to me is the sort of the essence of how conserv- conservatism rightly understood looks at everything. It's a prudential, you do have categorical principles, but you also understand that because we live in a flawed world, um, those principles can be in conflict in the actual moment. And that's why Hayekian types like you, you know, love all that common law stuff. It's because judges look at the particular examples of a particular case and say, well, in this case, the shepherd had a better argument than the farmer for these yes. circumstances. And you don't extrapolate from that wild one size fits all rules. And and to me, that's the proper understanding that that's sort of the essence of what uh, of conservative metaphysics as, you know, in praxis, as shall we say. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so for my second T.S. Eliot uh, reference of the day, and I think T.S. Eliot's one of those thinkers that conservatives should be thinking more about and should revisit. We've kind of forgotten him as a conservative thinker in some ways. Um, he talks about people uh, who dream of building systems so perfect that no one has to be good. <laughs> and I think That's great. that is, um, you know, a, a, a useful way of thinking about these things that um, there's also never going to be a system or a set of principles or an ideology so perfect that no one has to think about anything. That um, we can just say, well, we've got this um, you know, geometric proof that gives us our answers to political and moral and social questions. And we just run everything through these, you know, same, uh, through these same equations and we'll come out with the same uh, consistent set of answers every time. That's just not, not how the world actually works. So... Um, 
yeah, there's a there's almost everything ends up being a question of well, we've got different priorities, we've got trade offs, we have you know questions of judgment that we have to make based on imperfect information and not knowing what the outcomes will be, and um, that's something we also don't acknowledge either is that um, we don't know how things are going to turn out when we make certain decisions. Um, you know, if you went back and talked to FDR about uh, Social Security and and various other New Deal programs, he'd probably be surprised by how some of them turned out. I mean, he mm -hmm. might not be disappointed, um, but he'd probably be surprised by how some of these things turned out. Uh, if you went back and, you know, if you could bring George Washington to, uh, you know, Philadelphia in 2022 and show him around, he'd be surprised by how the revolution turned out and by what the country actually produced. You know, we make decisions based with the information we have at the time we make those decisions. And, um, and we do it with certain expectations, but um, we have a tendency sometimes to uh, reverse engineer that stuff. And when things turn out suboptimally, as things always do, uh, we say that this is, you know, corruption or this was, you know, someone being um, self-interested or, you know, driven by some nefarious motive or something like that. When in fact, you just can't really always see how things are going to turn out. Yeah. I mean, like, um, this is a very remnant bingo card conversation, but, um, you know, in Yuval's book, uh, The Great Debate, um, Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine, he, Yuval makes this point about how, you know, that the sort of one of the key metaphors, if we're going to get back to how metaphors influence our politics um, or categories influence our politics, is that one of the key outlooks of the left or progressives or whatever label we're supposed to use these days is they think of politics in terms of forward and backward or through time. And so like all of Payne's metaphors are about moving forward, you know, getting to a destination. It's the utopianism that you can find in Marx and Rousseau. Um, uh, you know, in Auguste Comte, he talks about the great wheel of history being pushed forward. You know, it's, it's, it's inherent in virtually all versions of progressive thought about moving directionally towards a destination and that everybody has to march together. And in Burke, it's all about space, you know? And so his thing is about, you know, creating a space you know his big thing is the english garden right where in the english garden each thing that's in the garden gets to reach its best potential for what it is and a carrot is never going to be the same thing as an apple and that's fine and um and the role of the state is to be the watchman to protect the space rather than to be the drummer who beats the the parade to march forward um together and i think that that's Obviously, there are going to be exceptions to it. Obviously, there are going to be, you know, uh, you know, prudential, you know, uh, caveats and all that. But I think it's a really good generalization um, because the garden metaphor allows you to have a certain amount of tolerance for contra contradiction, that different parts of the garden are going to be different. And that's OK, that people in one part of the country who live want to live one way. They can, so long as they let the people in another part of the country live another way. But the, the, the parade through time metaphor requires everybody to march in step. And, I, and that's the thing that sort of offends me about um, the sort of the progressive mindset. Yeah, I wrote about this a bit in uh, Smallest Minority, a book I wrote a couple of years ago, of this um, drive for homogeneity uh, in the world. And it's not just politics. It's in fact, it's much more than political. It's mainly uh, social. You know, it's um, 
there's a reason that so much of our uh, public discourse right now is uh, these sort of knockdown, drag out, bare knuckle fights over things that really amount to etiquette, mm-hmm. like um, you know, using this pronoun or that pronoun, or you know, describing people this way or that way. And um, you know, I remember this. My favorite sort of comical example of this when um, Bradley uh, Manning announced that he was going to be called Chelsea, and that he was trans and and all that sort of stuff. There were a bunch of newspaper stories and and uh, and articles saying. Bradley Manning says X, Y, and Z that he wants to be called Chelsea. And there were people who wanted these reporters fired uh, for saying Bradley Manning did X, Y, and Z because Bradley Manning doesn't exist. Right. And uh, you, you know, now if you had said Chelsea Manning says X, Y, and Z, everyone would have looked at the headline and said, who the hell is Chelsea Manning? Never heard of this person. Right. Um, but, you know, it's these, these questions of etiquette that take on this, great public ritual uh symbolic importance and we end up having these you know tremendous uh disputes and fights o- over those sorts of things and the presence of heterogeneity makes a certain kind of person i think really anxious and um makes them feel threatened about their status and uh and the status of the society and the social group in which they live and i think that really is the source of this kind of hysterical mania we're in right now for uh, social uh, conformism. Yeah. So it's like earlier this week, I did a panel at Cato um, with Deirdre McCloskey, who, you know, I'm not revealing anything. She talked about it openly on the panel, you know, used to be Donald McCloskey. And I got a lot of grief from randos saying, how dare you, you know, not, you know, how dare you do it? Or, you know, when she talked about transgender stuff, why didn't you push back? And, well, it's not why I was there and I don't, you know, whatever. I have a lot, a lot of reverence for Deirdre. Uh, she, she's taught me a lot of things and, mm-hmm. um, and I have no problem whatsoever treating her with respect and dignity because that's what I think you're supposed to do with everybody when you're face to face with them. Um, unless they give you a really good reason not to. Right. And that's just a rule of mine. And at the same time, uh, I think it is outrageous to tell people who um, have a well-grounded opinion based in scientific fact, you know, I mean, all the people saying follow the science about this, that, or other contentious thing, but then say, uh, you know, it's impossible to define a woman, which has been pretty well established in medical textbooks and biological textbooks, you know, what, what constitutes female for a while. Um, there's something really creepy and weird about it. And like the, if people could have a better sense of humor about these things, because the problem is the people who really want to push back on it are kind of jerks about it. Um, and, um, and I'm, I, I'm against that kind of mode at the same time, you know, that we're recording this on Thursday, uh, about two days ago, uh, Katanji, uh, Jackson Brown, Right, it's Brown Jackson. Jackson. Brown Jackson. We always want to say Jackson Brown because of the singer. We're used to saying those yeah. words in that order. It is weird. It drives me crazy. Um, um, but uh, the she was asked in a in a in a trollish kind of way, you know. But mm-hmm. you know, can you define a woman? And she said no, because I'm not a biologist. And like, I think it's fascinating that a Supreme Court nomin justice nominee who was picked explicitly because she's a woman, right? I mean, like Biden said, I will pick a woman. 
then that woman, because of political pressure, you know, because that's what it is. It's it's now a political litmus test on the left to not be able to give hard, hard and fast scientific based definitions of male, male and female um, that she refused to say it because this is just like above her pay grade and she's not a biologist. And it raises all sorts of fascinating issues, right? Because like, like sex, like, like what constitutes a male or a female has some, it crosses some, you know, uh, legal issues. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) The the, the follow-up question that I wish someone had asked was, is your husband a biologist? (laughs) <laughs> how did he figure it out but um how did biden yeah. know that you were a woman i mean like did he yeah, have some yeah, sort of litmus test to figure it out you know um and again i don't want to make light of too much of this stuff because i think there's some real you know humanity that we should have about some of these issues but sure of course there's a very well and i think uh, this actually kind of goes back to your 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 point about inconsistency and contradiction so um you know, we've essentially got two different things going on in the world that we are intentionally, in some cases, conflating. We've got the question of sex, which is a biological question, and we've got the issue of what we now call gender, which is really a grammatical term, but set that aside for the moment, by which we mean the social presentation of things relating to your sex as an individual. And these are not the same thing. And uh, But treating them as though they're the same thing or they're part of some unified phenomenon um, leads us into all sorts of troubles that we don't really have to have. So I think that, um, you know, if someone says I'm, uh, you know, I'm biologically I'm male, but I very feel strongly feel this about myself and I wish to present myself this way socially, and I wish to be called this and to wear these kinds of clothes and those sorts of things, those kinds of social accommodations are really pretty easy to make. Mm-hmm. Um, is is uh, is a, a phrase we both like, let your freak flag fly. You know, right. this is America. We're, we're, we're okay with that sort of thing. Um, because we're just talking about, you know, uh, relatively easy social issues. Um, when you're talking about the actual physical questions, um, like having men participating in women's sports, it's a very different kind of issue. And if we would talk about these things in such a way that was intelligent and that was not afraid of the seeming contradiction in this case of dealing with those things, we would be able to deal with it a lot easier, um, but we get confused about things. You know, we've never segregated sports by gender. Mm-hmm. We've always segregated sports by sex. Uh, there are a lot of women athletes who are gender nonconforming and have been over the years, and no one's ever thought they should participate in men's sports. Mm-hmm. This is never an issue that's really come up. Um, but we have these, you know, working from the precedent of discrimination against African-Americans, we feel the need to take this kind of universalist approach to all of these questions, including um, including uh, the, the issue of, of transgender people. And I think that the, the lack of charity in our, in our conversation is part of this as well, of course, that we can't take disagreements um, in good faith often. Mm-hmm. And we feel the need to, you know, ritually denounce people who disagree with us about these issues and to call their, you know, motives into uh, question and all the rest of it. But um, we, we've tried to do this occasionally. You know, when we were talking about gay marriage a few years ago, and people said, well, once upon a time, it was illegal for black people and white people to get married. And yes, and that was wrong. And this is not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you agree in both cases that it should be permitted, it's still not the same thing. 
Um, these are very different sorts of situations, and they should just be treated with that in mind. Well, so the, 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 so the interesting thing to me is, and I, the the term the, the 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 terminology is escaping me. Right? Is that there's there's um there's you know, it's, was it formalism versus uh, customary? You know, it's like one is a legal mm-hmm. conversation um, about um, you know state enforced things, and one is a cultural norm thing. And we often confuse the two, um, and we often want the state to be in the norm enforcement business, and um, uh, and sometimes that's okay with me, and sometimes, but more often it's not. But what's sort of interesting to me is that, you know, we mo- at least we remember Rachel Dolezal or however you pronounce her name, the woman who mm-hmm. literally the white woman who pretended to be black and actually ran uh, a state or local chapter of the NAACP because she identified as black. And what was really sort of interesting to me is that culturally. A lot of African-Americans and uh, left wing African-Americans and their, their sort of political allies made the argument that you and I are making is that the black experience is kind of unique and should be judged differently than other experiences. And you cannot sort of buy victimization on the cheap by pretending to be black when you did not grow up black and, and all that. And I have my problems with some of those arguments, but like it's an understandable argument from, from the African-American perspective. What's funny is that many of those same people want to make the exact opposite argument when it comes to identifying as female. Yeah. Right. And they want to have a carve out, uh, for identifying as African-American, uh, culturally as a matter of norms, but not for these other things. And in fact, you still have some people arguing that African-American or that blackness should be protected in the definition of blackness should be protected in law, which has led some people to write some really dumb law review articles about how now for the interests of the African-American community, we should return to the one drop rule, (laughs) Um, which is again, history is funny. Look, I mean, we're both old enough now that we've lived long enough. I think Conan O'Brien said this the other day, we've lived long enough now that we are celebrating German rearmament history. <laughs> history is weird, yeah. right? I mean, like it's weird. And these things, these things happen over time. Well, the other thing about, you know, slippery slopes is that um, so much of American public life and political life ends up being a scam. And, um, you know, so if you think about the conversation about uh, diversity and those sorts of things and civil rights laws, so you have the you know, 1950s and 1960s, where if you're black, it's basically impossible to participate in public life. It's very hard to travel, hard to get a job, uh, hard to get a proper education, all sorts of things. We start taking some steps to solve that, at the end of which Harvard is giving preferential treatment to Elizabeth Warren because she is a professor of color. Um, <laughs> now, I've met Elizabeth Warren, and she is the color of Elmer's glue. I don't think that's exactly what they what they had in mind. And um, you, you, know, you, you live around Washington. You've surely seen um, how a lot of this stuff ends up being a scam when it comes to things like contracting mm-hmm. and those sorts of things where, you know, businesses um, figure out ways to redefine their ownership in ways that gets them preferential treatment and certain kinds of things. And I think that, again, we would probably all be more 
comfortable with these things and accepting with these things if we understood that there were limits and that they were well-defined and uh, if we didn't think that people would treat them as um, you know, a pretext for all sorts of self-serving shenanigans. Yeah. I mean like, you know, the old axiom, get more of what you subsidize. Um, I remember, I I assume it's still true, but I remember years ago, my old boss, Ben Wattenberg pointing out that the number of, uh, uh, native Americans of American Indians had increased dramatically over some preceding (laughs) period of time. And he was like, now look at their fertility rate. And there's clearly not a lot of immigration going on. (laughs) And you know, it's that people were incentivized to identify as, you know, Native American for the the minority set aside stuff and and all that. And you get the same thing with to a certain extent, you know, like in the world of broadcast licensing, it was just a massive business to to find minorities because there was these carve outs yeah. under the Small Business Administration. And I'm not speaking to the underlying policy necessarily, just it was a real phenomenon. So yeah. Okay, so I announced on Twitter yesterday your favorite medium. Um until Truth Social is really <laughs> up and running. Um uh, scams. uh for questions to ask you about. Um oh God. Uh and uh I only wrote a couple down because many seemed many seem to be offered not in good faith. I'll just put it that way. Um, but, Imagine that. Oh, I have uh, a question for you, though. Okay. Uh, something I am curious about. Uh, in your opening uh, sound montage, uh-huh. which 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 dog is that? Oh, that's Zoe. That's the that's Zoe? the dingo. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, uh, that is her uh, patented aru. Um, uh, so, uh, first of all, why does Kevin hate Ohio? Uh, it's just every time I've ever been in Ohio, it's either something bad has happened to me while I was there or I was there because something bad happened to me. Um, it's just um, a state with which I've always had just sort of terrible experiences. But um, it's also a state that seems to sort of combine the worst of the industrial Northeast with the worst of the South in in some ways. I thought that was, so, um, I thought that was Kentucky, but. Well, Kentucky is pretty, though, compared to Ohio. And, um, you know, Kentucky is sort of um, the Appalachian-ness of Kentucky fits Kentucky. Uh, In a way, maybe it doesn't Ohio exactly. So Ohio, and it's also kind of got the worst of the Midwest, too. So it's all the kind of bad parts of the country rolled up into one. It's a a mess of a state. I like some of Ohio's cities. I think that there's still some great architecture. Um, and uh, um, if I had to pick a state to hate on, it would not be Ohio. I'm just, yeah. What I, would it be? I don't want to get any listeners angry, but you know, this is, this is, this is, this is how corruption starts is right. You start being terrified of offending your audience. Um, uh, I'll say my wife hates Florida with a blinding passion. I don't hate Florida. I'm not a huge Florida fan. Um, there are parts of Florida that I find more appealing than others, but, um, not a big fan of Florida. Um, I've never had a great experience in Oklahoma. Um, Mm. I find that people keep telling me they're really pretty parts of Arkansas. Um, and I've driven through the, been to the state many times and I've yet to find them. My funny thing about Arkansas is (laughs) I had a, before I got married, I had a girlfriend who was working in, in Arkansas, uh, clerking for a judge and. I visited there quite a bit 
This and, happened before you got married, you're saying? Yes, 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 yes. Before I, I, I landed the Sarah Jessica. And uh, so in the mid-90s. And, um, and I was also starting my sort of love affair with road trips and all that. And I looked up, uh, I wanted to find um, a regional travel book to see about doing like a road trip kind of thing. And it was really funny. I went to this thing that some of our older listeners remember called Bookstore. And in that this massive travel section, they had books on the West, the Southwest, the South. Um, and none of those regions would claim Arkansas. <laughs> um, it was like the cheese stood alone. Um, uh, One branch of my family is from Arkansas. I spent a lot of time there. So, um, and I hear the Ozarks are nice, but like, I, you know, I just never had the chance to go. You know, there. driving through Arkansas was actually the first time I ever really saw like this, uh, you know, kind of 19th century looking Snuffy Smith, uh, tin roof, uh, tar paper shack type poverty. Uh-huh. Uh, I'd never seen that anywhere in the world until was that the Clinton uh, Library, Arkansas. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. You know, funny thing about Arkansas is like a lot of uh, states like that, the cities have gotten really quite wealthy. And I was in uh, Little Rock it was a few years ago. And Little Rock is shockingly expensive hmm. uh, these days. Like, you know, $700 a night for a hotel sort of really? thing. Really? Uh, it wasn't like lot, that last you know, time I was there. Huh. There was a lot lot going on. Maybe I was there for a special event or something. But, um, yeah, it's a little like, um, oh, what's a good example of that? Um, well, Oklahoma City compared to the rest of Oklahoma in mm -hmm. some ways, or maybe Tulsa. Um, you do see this sometimes in largely uh, rural states where if there's one city, it kind of uh, – is much more a city than it is like the rest of the state. Um, okay. Another question for you. Um, do you have any thoughts on this, uh, new magazine compact? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, tell us about motorcycling through Europe. Oh, it sounds like a great idea. Um, I did ride around Spain one time. Uh -huh. Um, that's the only real motorcycling I've done much of in Europe. I guess I rode around in Rome a little bit one day, part of Italy. So yeah, I rented a bike in um, Madrid and I rode to uh, Barcelona and then kind of rode back the uh, northern way uh, through there. Beautiful, a lot of fun. And um, there's a place in Madrid where you can rent a uh, Harley. And uh, I'm more of a BMW guy for the most part, but I do like Harleys as well. And I've, I've had one of those. And um, so I rented one. Um, and it was pretty clear that this place was was being run by the local uh, Hells Angels branch. Hmm. And uh, this was you know, kind of their business. And so I remember asking them about, you know, deposits and stuff. And they're like, yeah, I don't really worry about it too much. You know, we'll find you if we need to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I took real good care of that bike. That was fun. I did run time ride, uh, took a long ride uh, through India uh, when I was a very young man. And that was a lot of fun. Interesting. Where'd you stay? Uh, mostly sort of on the side of the road. Okay. Um, I told you, you know, my daughter went to India on this special trip uh, two years ago. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I was like, so, and we were kind of, we were happy for her to do it in part because like, she's, you know, she's never really seen poverty. Like, I don't, you know, I mm -hmm. thought that would be a good thing for her to have a comprehension of. And, um, and so she went to India and she came back and I said, so what was your, like, um, you know, what was your big takeaway from going to India? And her response was, 
that I never have to go to India ever again. <laughs> where where was she? Um, she went to a bunch of places. Um, I don't want to. Uh, I would. I've never been to India. I would love to go to India. I do not have in me whatsoever to go to India on the cheap. Um, uh, just those days. Well, I was over. living there at the time, so it wasn't yeah. just a, you know a vacation. I was living in Delhi. Um, she also went to Nepal, which she liked quite a bit. Um, mm. But like we've taken Lucy on you know, scores now of cross country or long drives. And we've had lots of experiences with, with terrible bathrooms. And, um, she, she said yeah. that the, <laughs> the, the best among the best bathrooms were still at the bottom of the list of the worst bathrooms we had here in the States. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's a downside, particularly being, I guess, a woman on a road trip in, in India. At least um, it was the time I was there. Um, and finally, uh, do you have uh, any fiction recommendations? This came up quite a bit for some reason. Uh, yeah, I've been reading a book called The Books of Jacob by Olga, last name I can't pronounce there. I think it's uh, Tokachuk or something like that. I can't remember her name or how to pronounce her name. She, uh, I guess, won the Nobel Prize uh, a while back. And it's a very interesting book. I recommend it. All right. Um, oh, uh, one last thing, since you actually gave me a shout out um, in your fantastic newsletter um, um, about my Shadi Hamid episode. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, that was fun to listen to. Um, um, <laughs> he was in such pains to say, I'm no kind of conservative, but right. let me make this point from Ronald Reagan, the second point from George W. Bush, and this last point from Pat Buchanan. Um, and it does have me thinking that we kind of need to come up with a new term that in our day would mean neoconservative because neoconservative is fairly or unfairly. We can have that conversation another day taken on, um, as I want to call it, the connotation of bagel snarfing warlord, um, uh, or warmonger. (laughs) Um, uh, but, uh, like Jonathan Haidt. I think fits the classic definition of a, of a neocon, um, of the original wave, right? Uh, uh, data focused once, once very liberal realized that inherent in liberalism were all sorts of utopian or categorical assumptions about human nature that were not in fact true and went where the data took them beyond Lorborg sort of is a version of that on the climate side. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, one can make Neo that neocons. Yeah, one can make that argument about John McWhorter, right? Um, and yeah. and you know, I, I don't want to get shoddy in any trouble for saying it, but like as you point out, it 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 feels very neoconish um, <laughs> to me. And um, well, it's funny you know, how people are with the kind of tribalism in this stuff. When I used to do Twitter and other kinds of social media, almost every time I wrote anything of any substance. I would get someone who would write, um, well, Kevin Williamson obviously is loathsome, but this is a great piece and you should read this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I wouldn't normally share something from National Review, but, you know, do this. I, I called them the reluctant fan club. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that out there. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, anyway, I just think it's it's something to noodle about how it, it, I, I tried not to think about intellectual life as a, a political project but it would be good to come up with some sort of label 
that, you know, because that intellectual dark web thing seems to have, as I kind of predicted at the time, um, turned out to be a hot mess. Um, no. <laughs> and um, it would be good Couldn't to see that coming. I mean, it, maybe maybe we'll just call all these people, you know, parts of the remnant, you know, and just be done with it. Well, remnant's good. And um, I'm a, a, a knock fan, as you know, and, and a Jonah Goldberg fan. But um, I think maybe we should disaggregate some of this stuff. I think it's easier for people to, um, for instance, take a realist view of foreign policy without the rest of the conservative stuff attached to it. Sure. Or to do like some of the early neocons did, which take a realist view of things like the welfare state or the federal budget without necessarily taking the whole rest of the right-wing enchilada uh, onto the plate. Um one of the, I know I've, I've sort of obliquely talked about tribalism a lot today, but one of the real costs it imposes on us is that um, it makes it very, very difficult to cooperate with people who agree with us substantively on some important issue like foreign policy, but who disagree with us on some other things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> Nidra McGlusky is actually a great example of this, that, um, you know, I there's a lot of very... Um, energetic sort of morally on fire trans rights activists in the United States who don't want to be lectured about bourgeois values. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> and of right. course that is, you know, what Deidre McCluskey is, is best known for. So um, sometimes it's helpful to take things one issue at a time, I think without trying to make an identity out of it. Um, yeah. I mean, I would, I've been thinking about, like I still want to hold on to the label conservative for all the obvious, mm-hmm. maybe some not non-obvious reasons. But I'm starting to wonder. You're saying you're conservative about that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I am starting to wonder whether or not the tyranny of the estates general seating chart of the late 1700s um, has outlived its <laughs> usefulness. And the right left thing obscures more than it reveals at this point. Um, but it's also just, it's also the language that we know how to speak in. It's very difficult to invent new categories, uh, that, um, that convey meaning in a way that is productive rather than confusing. But anyway, it's it's also so much of our politics has just become an enemies list, you know? So it's that, um, if you, uh, have something in common with someone who is on the wrong side, who is not one of us, then that is some kind of indictment of you. You know, um, in the um, Judge Brown, uh, Judge Jackson, rather, you know, you've got me doing (laughs) Judge Jackson hearings. um, A lot of Democrats were citing this National Review essay written by Andy McCarthy about the claims that she is somehow um, outrageously out of step with other judges on sentencing when it comes to child porn cases, which apparently she's not. And this was taken as just um, a prima facie indictment of McCarthy and uh, of National Review, because if Cory Booker is reading it, it must mean it's wrong. Mm-hmm. No one ever spoke to the rightness or the wrongness yeah. of what Andy had, had written. Um, it was all just about, well, obviously, if this is something that is of service to these people we're supposed to hate, then it must be itself defective in some way. Yeah. No, I mean, look, this is my great, great piece. I just wrote a piece praising Andy for that. Um Telling the truth or even telling the truth as you see it, right? You know, because people can disagree about what objective reality is, but telling the truth is its own defense. Yeah. Um, and 
people who say, you know, McCarthy, Andy, who I love, did something disloyal because he told the truth about something. Um, they're telling on themselves more than they're telling on Andy. I mean, yeah. it's like, moreover, like, 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 and I, I mean, I just wrote about this. I've said this a million times. One of the things I love about Andy is like, if he endorses some conservative right wing argument, I may disagree with him. I may not. It depends on the substance of it. But if there's some crazy right wing theory or, you know, conspiracy theory or whatever that he says, yeah, I checked this out and it's not true. I take that to the bank because yeah. Andy wants that stuff. Andy's got, I mean, I'm not trying to criticize him. He's a strong partisan, right? He, <laughs> he, and, but he wants that stuff to be true. He yeah. wants it to be true. And he will look <laughs> for a way. Cause he's like, he thinks like a prosecutor. He's like, yeah. as long as I can stay within the four corners of the rules of evidence and decorum and legal standards and present facts that is, is, is uh, not distorting. Then, you know, he, he write when he writes, sometimes it's like he's writing prosecutors briefs. And prosecutor degrees yeah. have to be true according to the laws of legal ethics, right? Um, but they can be selective, or whatever. And if he, if he says, "Yeah, I looked into this, and you know this, uh, you know this Trump theory about how Ukraine was really behind the email hacking or whatever is just not true," like I take, I, I, I believe it because he is, he, he is because he has integrity and he's an honest guy, he will not go where the facts won't let him. And that's, yeah. it's increasingly rare in our you, know, you talk about this stuff being an unintentional confession. And uh, this reminded me, there was this really incredibly stupid piece in the New Republic uh, about a week ago, I guess. And that's increasingly redundant to say because it's an incredibly stupid magazine these days, unfortunately. It wasn't always that way. But it was, you know, about National Review and Trump. And it was, well, first they said this, and then they said that, and then they said this, and they said this other thing. And then on one day, they said two separate things that were contradictory. And I wrote a little response to it. As we publish a variety of articles by different right. people who don't all agree with one another. And what do you do? <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, you know I, I think people really are surprised to learn that... Um, to a great extent, there isn't some, you know, kind of party line uh, imposed yeah. uh, on, on people. It's just, you know, it's a sensibility and a point of view uh, more than it is, you know, a, uh, a checklist if you have to believe this and not that and hate these people and endorse these people. And uh, but I think that's really become the norm, unfortunately, for, you know, a certain generation of political writers and activists where um, every institution has to be essentially a homogenous lump. Mm -hmm. and um, and they're confused when they encounter one that isn't. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, and, and we're seeing this with a lot of institutions. You know, yeah. uh, I mean, Heritage. I can't believe Cato let you in the building. <laughs> it's taken years to 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 heal old wounds, <laughs> which we don't need to get into. Um, anyway, we could we uh, we're over time. I'm kept you longer than I said I would. So, um, this is a conversation that we could go in a lot of different directions on and make, make some friends angry. Um, but, uh, maybe we'll do that the next time. Anyway, uh, Kevin Williamson, thank you so much for, uh, coming back. And obviously you're always welcome and, uh, keep up alive. Good to see you. Okay. So, uh, Kevin has left and, um, I'm still here and, uh, uh, always fun to talk to Kevin. Um, curious what people will think of the conversation. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm pretty much always, always curious um 
And uh, I'd ask you guys for suggestions about what to talk about in the solo ruminant. But by the time you listen to this, I'll probably have recorded it. So that's a problem. And um, uh, that's really all I got. Um, thanks for all the positive feedback. Thank you for the birthday wishes, by the way. Um, and, um, you know, even though my own colleagues here at the Remnant are dead to me. And um, uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Show's over.